hey, that wasn't bad. I don't know if we have to do it a second time. Let's do it anyways. Good morning. Okay, I just have to do it twice every single Sunday. Hey, uh, so glad that you are with us. Uh, these guys up front here, when we start a new series, we have what we call Sermon Sidekicks. If you'd like to take notes or journal, so if you would like one of these, all you have to do is raise your hand and they'll toss that at you or get it to you somehow. So, well, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. So grateful to be with you all this morning. If you are watching online, we want to just especially welcome you as well, no matter where you are watching from, your home, the coffee shop. Uh, just grateful that you've decided to kind of log on and join us this morning, so we hope that you're blessed as well. Certainly for those that have, are in the room with us, so glad that, that you are here today. Um, we are in this series called The Middle Space. Pastor Wes kicked it off for us last week. The idea here is pretty simple. Middle spaces are those moments or seasons in life where you're not where you used to be, but you're not quite where you're headed. You're, ju you're just in the middle. And the reality is all of life is a middle space. From the first breath you take to the very last breath you take, you are living in the middle. But inside of that life that we live, there are lots of other smaller or more intense middle spaces that we live through. And some of those middle spaces bring joy, they bring life, they breathe life into us. So, so the middle space of being engaged, right? You're not single anymore, but you're not quite married, you're on your way, you're just sort of in the middle and you're anticipating what that engage or what that marriage will look like and life together. So there's excitement and joy with that. There's the middle space of uh, wanting to have a family. It, there's just two of you now, but someday you hope it's three or four or five, but you're not there yet. There's just anticipation in the middle as you try to have a family. Lots of you are in this middle space right now during the season where you're about to leave high school or you're about to leave college and you'll move on to your career or you'll move on to college, you'll move from high school to college, but there's a space sometimes between those moments where you're not quite into your career yet and maybe you have to just work a, a different job for a season and you're not in college yet, you're, you're graduated from high school, you're still living at home with, with mom and dad, but you're eagerly anticipating getting out of the house and into a dorm and living a life of freedom, right? But you're in the middle for a few months. So there are middle spaces where they, they breathe life into us. It's also true that there are seasons of life in middle spaces that take life. They don't breathe into us. In fact, they come with anxiety and fear. For instance, the middle space of trying to have a family. There's two of you, and someday you hope there are three or four or five, but you've been trying in the middle space week after week, and then it's turned into month after month, and now it's been year after year, and finally you've been told by the doctor that you can't have children, and you feel stuck in the middle of where you started and where you want to be. There are those type of middle spaces. There's the middle space of divorce, where you were married, and now you're headed towards this divorce, and you're in the middle, it hasn't happened yet, and you don't even know what life will look like after the divorce, you're just sort of in that middle season, and it does not breathe life into you, it does not bring joy to your heart. There's the middle space of financial distress, where a year ago you were financially stable, but now because of a market downturn or perhaps a loss of a job, you find yourself up against bankruptcy and you have no idea what that looks like, you're just in the middle. 
there are middle spaces where you get a diagnosis from a doctor that you never thought in a million years you'd hear. And it's terminal or it's going to alter your life forever. And you're not where you used to be and you have no idea what that season or space in life looks like. You're just in the middle. I have three nieces who, they're, they're all sisters in they are here in Michigan right now. They all live out of, uh, out of the state, but they've all come to Michigan to say goodbye to their stepmother who they've known their whole lives. She has terminal cancer and they're literally at her home right now as we speak saying goodbye as she prepares to enter into eternity. And I think about those three, my three nieces in the middle space that they're in, but I think about their father, Jim, and the middle space that he finds himself in. Where, where he's married, but he will become a widower, and he has no idea what that life looks like at all. He is smack dab in the middle. Um, just this past week, actually a week ago, we got a phone call to our office here. I was in my office working, and Megan was on the front desk, and she, she came back and said, hey, I just need to share this with you, that, that the phone call she took was a member of our church. They've been a member here for 23 years, and five minutes before she called us, she received a phone call that her son was tragically killed. And she was thrust into the middle. She asked if one of the pastors on staff could come and just be with her and, and the family. So I, le I left the office and drove three minutes away. And when I walked in the house, she just, I just wrapped her in my arms and she just cried. And then we went and sat on the couch for a little while. And as a pastor, when you walk into moments like that, you, you wanna be helpful, you wanna say things that are helpful, but you know inevitably somebody's gonna ask a question you simply cannot answer in moments like that. So we were just sitting on the couch and she was crying and I would just pray because I didn't really know what else to do. So I would pray and pray and pray. But there was just this refrain that kept coming out of her. She just kept saying to me in this middle space that she found herself in, I don't know how to move forward. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know what's next. I don't know what the future looks like. In other words, what she's saying is, I'm not where I used to be. I have no idea what that looks like. I don't know how to get there. I'm in the middle and I don't know how to move forward. I don't even know how to handle this moment that she found herself in. And that's where, as the pastor, you, you want to say something to be helpful. And the only thing I could think to say again, the only thing that I could come up with was, let's just, let's just trust Jesus in this moment. Let's just, in this middle moment that you find yourself in, let's just trust Jesus. And for a split second while I was there, you get this voice in your head, right? It's the voice of doubt. It's the voice of the enemy. And he whispered into my head, he said, Aaron, do you really believe what you're saying to her or are you just saying it because it sounds like something a pastor would say in this moment? Do you really believe that in these middle moments, these seasons of life where we're jarred out of our reality and we're not where we used to be and we're not where we're headed, that we just need to trust Jesus? Do you believe that or are you just saying it because it sounds good in the moment? And, and the, the truth for me is, I do believe it, gang. I do believe that Jesus is trustworthy. 
I believe he's trustworthy in the big middle space of life, but I believe he's trustworthy in all of the smaller ones that make up life that we just move from one to the next to the next. And this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna just share a story with you where we see trust in real time. And for those of you who are perhaps struggling to trust Jesus with something in your life, For those of you who are asking that very question, is Jesus trustworthy? My hope and prayer for you today is that you will see trust in real time and perhaps come to the same conclusion that I have, that yes, he is. And he is certainly trustworthy in the middle moments when it makes no sense. So here's what I wanna do for us this morning. I wanna take us to a story in the book of John. If you have a Bible, we're gonna go to John chapter two. And I'll just tell you right off the top, it's an unlikely story. It's not really a middle space story. You wouldn't read this as as if somebody's in the middle, although I could argue that it is. But what it is, is it's a story where you see people in really odd, crazy circumstances trusting Jesus. And there are three moments I wanna point out to us and my hope is that one of these moments, maybe all three, but one of these moments will touch your heart or speak to you or the Holy Spirit will use this story to reach out to you and to say, listen, I'm trustworthy. So it's John chapter two. It's about a wedding, it's a party, and they're completely out of all the good stuff. All right, let's see what Jesus does in this moment. So John chapter two, we'll put it up on the screen for you. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. You and I cannot really fully comprehend this moment. Right, if we showed up to a wedding, my my son is getting married in September, and if we showed up to a wedding and there were no more wine, we would send somebody to Meijer or the wine store and just buy more wine. We wouldn't think anything of it. But in this moment, that's not possible. Not only is it not possible, but it would have been an absolutely huge embarrassment for the family to run out of something so central as a cup of wine for your guests. In fact, this, the couple, along with their families, would have lived in shame and embarrassment for weeks, if not months. They would have been a social disgrace. In some circumstances, depending on the wedding and the arrangement, you could actually sue the couple if they ran out of wine. That's a bad deal. <laughs> And so we can't understand the immensity of this moment and what it looks like right on, the, right on the surface is that this is an impossible circumstance that there really is no solution for. And yet Jesus shows up. So they run out of wine and here's, here's how the, the rest of the story goes. So Jesus' mother comes to him and here's how he responds. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Now, in the English language, when we read that, when we read, woman, why do you uh, bother me with this? It's a bit abrasive and almost offensive. In that culture, the way he would have addressed it would have been more like, mother, why do you bother me, right? So it gets translated a little uh, poorly, but that's the idea. He says, why do you bother me with this? My time has not yet come. And essentially what he's saying here in this moment is that, mom, this isn't my problem. The fact that they're out of wine really doesn't have anything to do with me. 
And there's a bigger issue for Jesus as well. He's not ready to go public with his ministry. He's not ready to draw all kinds of attention to himself. So if he were to fix this in a public way, he'd have crowds of people surrounding him, and he's not ready for that. So he's trying to stay very, very low-key in this moment. That's why he tries to defer and says, it's not my problem. But that never deters a mother. Here's what she says, right? Here's what she says. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Just do whatever he says. Now, I want to point something out, and this is actually fairly important for where we're headed this morning. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's 30 years old. He hasn't done anything at this point. John tells us later on in this very same story that this is the first of his signs or his miracles that he performs. So at this point, at this moment, he hasn't done anything. He hasn't walked on water. He hasn't raised Lazarus from the dead. He hasn't fed thousands and thousands of people with a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish. He hasn't given deaf people their hearing back, blind people their sight back, mute people their tongue back. He hasn't given lame people their legs back. He hasn't done anything miraculous for Mary to point backwards to and go, well, I saw him do that then, so I'm pretty sure he can handle this now. And yet... She looks at the servants and says, just do whatever he says. What is that? It's trust. It's, it's trust. But this is important. In this moment, Mary is trusting Jesus for who he is, not what he can do. She is trusting in the good character of her son because remember he hasn't done anything at this point nothing and so all she has to hang on is the good character of her son and the reason she can do that is because she knows Jesus I mean she knows him deeply and intimately and that relationship that she has with Jesus is what drives her to trust him in this moment where it makes no sense So may I ask you a question? How well do you know Jesus? Like, how well do you know Christ? When is the last time, if prayer is open communication with, with God and it's a way for us to get to know him and him to get to know us, when is the last time you prayed? And I don't mean prayed like God's neat, let's eat, let us think of, let, I mean deep, open your heart before God type of prayer where you put everything out on the table before him, all of the fears, all of the hurt, all of the anger, all of the uncertainty about the future. When is the last time you opened up your heart in prayer before God and you let him know you so that you could know him when he responds back? When is the last time you opened this and drank deeply of the stories that are in here? And I'm all for, you know, my wife and I, we do a devotion in the morning together. She reads it to me. And I like the, the, the Version Bible app has a devotion that just kind of, you can follow along. 
But when is the last time you opened up the story of Jesus? That from, from beginning to end, this book is about Jesus. It's page after page after page. And what he's done is he's revealed who he is. He's revealed his good character. The goodness of God is found in these pages. When's the last time you opened it up and you just drank deeply of the story of Jesus? For the last month and a half, I've just been going through the book of John. I've gone through the book of John in the last 20 years, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Still today, I continue to find new things in there about the person of Jesus Christ that I've read over and over and over again. Why is that? Why can I find something new in a story I've read over and over and over again? Because God wants me to know him. When is the last time you just spent some time in silence and solitude? Just shut off all the noise of the world. Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and ESPN and whatever else occupies our time and fills our ears and just said, Jesus, I don't even know what I want you to say or what I need you to say, but in this moment of silence and it's just me and you, I'm... God, I'm asking you to speak to my heart. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you confessed in any way to your heavenly father? God, I am sorry for this addiction. I am sorry for the way I spoke to my wife. I'm sorry for the way I treat my coworkers. I'm sorry for the way I neglect. When's the last time you just opened your heart up in honest confession before Jesus as a way to know the goodness of his forgiveness in your life? Do you know Jesus? See, Mary, she just knows him, and she knows his character. I think about my wife. If I never spent any meaningful time having just open conversation with her, how can I know her? If I never spend moments of silence, and just, just her and I, getting rid of all of the noise of the world, and it's just her and I together, how can I truly know her? If I never spend any time confessing my hurts or what makes me angry or the fears that I have in life with her, how can I know her and therefore how can I trust her? It's no different with your heavenly father. And so we come to this moment in this story where it is an impossible circumstance that it just doesn't seem like there's any solution for and all you have is a mom pointing at her son going, just do what he says because I trust who he is and whatever he does next, it'll be the right thing. I don't, know, I don't know if he's going to change water into wine. I don't know if he's going to go out and just say, hey, we're out of wine, and then he'll preach a sermon and distract everybody. I don't know. Just do what he says, because I trust who he is. So she says, just do what he said. Here's how the story unfolds. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, the servants, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Okay. Can you imagine being the servant in this moment? <laughs> you know there's a problem. You know the wine is gone because you probably poured the last glass and came back and discovered that all the jars are empty. 
and you started talking to your fellow servants about it, and maybe that's how Mary overheard, you understand there's a problem, and you're trying to figure out how they're gonna get out of this mess. How are they gonna get out of this middle moment where there doesn't seem to be a solution for it, and so some guy with his mother, okay, just imagine you're the servant, some guy you don't know shows up with his mom in the kitchen, and says, just do what he says, and he says, take a bunch of pots and fill them with water. So you do it because you have no idea what's going on in this moment. You do it, but can you imagine how fearful it must have been to be the servant when Jesus says, now take it to the master of the banquet. You're starting to figure out how they're gonna solve this. They're gonna blame it on me. I'm gonna bring a glass of water to the master of the banquet because that's what it is to him and when he tastes it, he's gonna ask me why I've brought a glass of water and I won't have an answer. I'll have to tell him the wine is gone and somehow it's probably gonna fall on my shoulders that somehow I wasted the wine and this is going to be my fault. Can you imagine what kind of fear begins to set in if you're the servant and when you find yourself in a middle space, isn't it amazing how fear just inserts itself? No matter what that middle space is, one of those hard middle spaces, fear just finds its way in. And here's what's important for us to know, especially when we're in the middle space. If we're not careful, fear will talk you right out of trust. Every time. If you have been so hurt before, relationally, and you're afraid of being hurt again, you will never trust another person with your heart, will you? If you have been betrayed by your friends because you shared your life with them and then they started a rumor, you are so afraid of being betrayed again that you will never trust your story with another person. You are so afraid of the unknown that you will trust no one with your future and you will do everything you can to keep a grip of control over your life. Fear will talk you right out of trust. Why do you think 365 plus times throughout the Bible when God shows up, he shows up with the statement, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. It's one of the biggest emotions that we wrestle with as a human being. And if we're not careful, it'll talk us right out of trusting God and his goodness in our life. So we come to this moment where these servants, I mean, I don't know if I were one of the servants, I think maybe I would bolt. Like, let's just get out of Dodge. This is not gonna end well for us. But look at what happens next. Watch this. So they took it. They take this glass of water that some random guy and his mom said to do, and they take it to the master of the banquet. And you know what we see unfold here over the next couple of minutes in these next few verses? When you trust God in the middle of your fear, often that is the very thing that brings about the goodness of God in your middle space. 
Trusting God in the middle of fear is key to experiencing the goodness of God in the middle space. Watch what happens next as these servants bring out the wine. Here's what happens. So the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. They know what's going on here. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best until now. Trusting God in the middle of fear is key to experiencing the goodness of God in the middle space. You saved the best until now. Church, I mean, we, we've talked about this. We're in a middle space as a church, right? As we uh, search for the next senior pastor here. And we've been in this middle space now for several weeks and we know where we were we're not there anymore. We sort of know where we're headed, right? Senior pastor, and there's a search, and there's a whole process, but we don't really know exactly what it looks like or who the next person will be, but we're just in the middle. But here's what I believe, and I've said it up front, and I say it in the end of my emails, and I say it to the staff. The best is yet to come. Sometimes Jesus saves the best until now. The best is yet to come, and I believe that because we have a God who can turn water into wine. Are you tracking with me? So if you're in a middle space, maybe it is that middle space of divorce. Maybe it is that middle space of financial crisis. It's that middle space of, of health crisis. Can I just tell you, I always believe the best is yet to come because we have a God who can turn water into wine. So here's how the story moves on. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee. So we're getting to the end of the story here. John is wrapping it up for us. He says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. I highlighted two phrases for us. Well, the, the word did the reason I highlighted this because we, we started this story with Mary trusting in Jesus for who he is. That's his character. We get to the end of the story and what we see are his disciples believing in what he did. That's his ability. So what you have is a God who has both good character and ability. And when you put those two things together, I would contend with you that that is a God that can be trusted that a God who has the good character that Jesus has, who he is, and he has the ability to, turn, to change water into wine, I believe that's a God that can be trusted. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him, to which we would say, well, of course they did. Look at what they just saw. I mean, they just witnessed this miracle, and John doesn't tell us how they, they found out or how they saw, or what, but they knew what had happened, so of course they believed because they saw Jesus do something. And that word believed in the Greek literally means trust. They, they put their trust in him. For the next three years, they trusted him with their whole life. So I, I wanna close with this story this morning. Um, several years ago, 
my wife and I planted a church. We talked about that before. It was called The Story, and we were there for 10 years. We thought we'd be there forever. It was 72 seconds from our house. I timed it, 72. And we thought we'd, our kids went there, friends, family. We grew the church from nothing to just a really great size. And, and, and then one day, my wife worked at the church as well. She was the administrator, so she ran the place, basically. And one day I started to feel this sense or this pull in my heart that my time was up at the story. And we had no idea what was next. Both my wife and I, we both drew our income from the church. So our entire livelihood was wrapped up in this thing. And I started to get this feeling like, nope, my time is up here, but no, no idea what was next for me. So just out of pure obedience, that's all I had. Out of pure obedience, I resigned from the church and my wife came with me. So we were jobless, nothing. And we still had a mortgage, by the way. That's how I got connected to Chick-fil-A. I ended up becoming a training director for Chick-fil-A, which was an unbelievably incredible experience for me. Um, and when that season began to, to come to a close, I got a call from the Mountain Plains region of the Wesleyan Church out in Colorado. And there was a church out there that had been declining and the pastor was resigning and he was gonna move to Alaska. And so I got a call from the superintendent out there that just said, hey, would you and your wife be willing to move out here and try to revive this thing and keep it alive? They didn't want to close the church in this particular community. They, they really wanted to try to keep it alive. So my wife and I, we love the mountains and we love Colorado. So we said, sure. And we prayed about it and prayed about it and prayed about it. So we moved out there. So we found ourselves in this middle space of leaving the story and being you know, unemployed or working for Chick-fil-A. And then all of a sudden, we're in a brand new middle space. We're out in Colorado with no support system. There's no friends, no family out there. We have no idea really what to expect. And there were 12 people at my first service. It was rip-roaring, let me tell you. Three months after we landed in Colorado and had our first service, COVID hit. And the whole world shut down. No more church services. You weren't allowed to go in public. I mean, you all know, we all lived through it. So all of a sudden, we're in this other middle space. We just went from one middle to the next middle to the next middle. Around the exact same time, not only did the world decide to shut down, but so did the one car that we owned in Colorado. So we had a Honda Pilot, and it was fairly old, and it was just over 200,000 miles on it, and it just started to... Uh, un, you know, underperform. And so I, I, I took it to the mechanic and the mechanic said, well, I mean, the, everything was falling apart inside the engine. And he basically said, you've got $6,000 worth of repairs. It was the only car. We only brought one car out there with us. And he was honest enough to say, I, I honestly wouldn't, I wouldn't put any money into it. It's not worth $6,000. You could have multiple problems even after we fix this. He said, I just wouldn't invest $6,000 into this old car. So we were faced with this dilemma of living in Colorado with essentially one car that didn't work. And I don't know if you know anything about Colorado. It's hilly. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> it's hard to get up and down the mountains in a car that doesn't work. So we were in... Uh, this position where we had to try to find a new car. And we had, so at the time, we had $10,000 in the bank. That's all we had. And Colorado is one of the most expensive places in the country to live, okay? And the church paid me a part-time-ish salary. 
I had to continue to work for Chick-fil-A while I was out there. My wife worked for Chick-fil-A while we were out there. And even after all of that, having three jobs, we still couldn't pay the bills. So we were dipping into that savings, that $10,000 every single month just to survive out there. And now we have to somehow buy a new car. And my wife and I decided we didn't want to finance a car. It just didn't make sense for us. We didn't want that big loan. We didn't want that note, especially with uh, just the uncertainty of everything we were living with. So we said, we're only gonna pay cash for our car. And we were like, we can only pay 5,000 because if we take all the 10,000 and empty it, we'll really be desperate at the end of the month. So we committed to $5,000 and that was it. Well, we started searching for cars and we ended up actually going to a Honda dealership and there was this car, is a Subaru Outback, and it was literally out back in the parking lot. It hadn't even been cleaned yet. Somebody had just brought it in. It had the paperwork on the seats. And we were like, well, can we, can we take that one for a test drive? So we, we took it for a spin and found out that the car was $15,000. It had like 7,000 miles on it. It was practically brand new. And so we're driving this car around and eventually we just get around to the point and we just say to each other, well, listen, we made a commitment. We're not gonna finance a car. We're only gonna spend $5,000. Why are we driving this car around? This doesn't make any sense for us. And so we spend 20 minutes just driving the car. Finally, I pulled over into a parking lot. It was empty. It was a business. The parking lot was empty. And, and Brenda was going to take over. And, and we stopped and chatted for a few more minutes and just said, yeah, we, we were committed. We just, we can't finance. It'll, it'll kill our budget. We have to just go back. And we've just got to find a car for $5,000. And we'll probably get some clunker that makes it up the mountains once. That's what we were sort of reserved ourselves into. So I pull over as we're taking this test drive into this parking lot and I shift the car into park and the moment I shifted it into park, I do not say that for dramatic effect, the moment I shifted the car into park, my wife's phone rings. She picks up the phone and she shows me the caller ID and it's a relative of hers that we don't talk to, we rarely talk to them, there, there's nothing bad, it's just a very distant um, relationship and so we don't see them often and we do not uh, talk to them often. So when you get a phone call like that, you, sometimes you just think the worst, you know, somebody's sick or somebody has passed away. So, so Brenda said, I should probably take the phone call. So she picks up the phone and I can only, of course, hear one side of the conversation and it's pretty simple. All I can hear, Brenda, is okay, uh-huh. Oh, wow, really? Oh, wow, okay. Thank you, yeah, thank you, thank you for, for calling. And she hangs up the phone and she turns to me and she says, that was my, so it was her cousin, that was the, the long lost relative of, of hers. He's a pastor here in Michigan. And he said, I've been thinking about you guys the last couple of days and praying about you and I just feel like I'm supposed to call you now. And, and she, he said, Brenda, I want you to know that as we're, as we're talking, this is how he said it to her. I'm writing you a check for $10,000 and I'll put it in the mail tomorrow morning and you may use it for whatever you need it for. In my brilliant, godly theological response back to my wife, here's what I said. Huh. <laughs> I, I stared out the windshield at the empty parking lot, looked back at my wife and said, huh. 
because I didn't know what else to say until we realized that Jesus had done something for us. That Jesus, who is full of good character, had done something for us. What are the chances he calls while we're driving the car, talking about how we cannot afford it and we refuse to finance it? You can try to explain away that story, but I think it's hard to explain it any other way than to say Jesus did something for us. And here's why I share that story with you this morning. I mean, it's probably fairly obvious. One, I want you to just see and know that Jesus still does miracles 2,000 years later. Sometimes they don't look like glasses of wine. They look like Subaru Outbacks, but they're just as real. The other reason I tell that story, though, is this. When those disciples, when they saw the miracle, when they saw or knew that Jesus had transformed that water into wine, it says that's when they believed in him. And my hope and prayer is that for those of you that are struggling this morning to believe in the good character of God, you're struggling to believe that Jesus is trustworthy, I hope you can see what he did for me. I I know it's not your life and your story, but I hope that you can see what he does in the lives of others as well, and you can believe like the disciples did that day in the trustworthiness of Jesus. And if you doubt his goodness, if you doubt his character, if you doubt his ability, my car is parked out back. I'll take you for a ride in it. But here's, so this is this third moment, and this has been a lesson for me, and it's probably just a lesson for me. I don't know if this applies to everybody, but I look at this story, and what what Colorado has taught me, even this moment that we're in as a church has taught me, but just certainly what Jesus has taught me is that sometimes you have to be willing to be Mary before you get to be the disciples. You have to just believe in the good character of who Jesus is. You have to believe that he is for you. You have to believe that he cares about you. You have to believe that he knows what you need and it is out of his good character that he moves and acts on behalf of his children. Sometimes you have to be willing to be Mary before you get to be the disciples. And I hope in some way today, if you're in a middle space, whatever that looks like for you, you can answer the question, is Jesus trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for this story, for this moment that we can look back to and see not only your good character, but your ability to do anything, even when it doesn't make sense. God, for those of us who are in a middle space, I mean, we're all there, but for those of us who feel stuck in a middle space that is sucking the life out of us, that it hurts, it's causing anxiety. We're fearful for the future. I pray that you'd meet us right in the middle of that moment. 
And if there is anybody in this room who still doubts the goodness of God, who still doubts whether or not he is trustworthy because he hasn't done anything yet in their life, I would challenge all of us to simply look to the cross. The cross is ultimately, God, where you proved you are beyond trustworthy. It is the good character of you, Jesus, that made the cross possible. And it is on the cross that we see who God is by what he did for us. So I would just ask all of us to look to the cross. And Jesus, I pray that you'll meet us in our middle spaces and that we would find that you are trustworthy. I pray for this. Thank you for this moment. Ask for these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.